0: want you to take your mind back first to the days and weeks after Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 US election and Donald Trump became president. A new book, Lady Justice has been written about that time when a small army of female lawyers and advocates sprang into action. The author is Dahlia Lithwick. She's a contributing editor at Newsweek and a senior editor at Slate. And she says this band of women was simply, quotes, unwilling to drift backward to a time when men made policy and women made dinner. That these women were born for this precise moment. They were galvanised and awakened before the Trump inauguration and only deepened their engagement with the legal system, and the in the weeks and months and years that followed, which is still playing out. I'm pleased to welcome Dali to Saturday Extra to learn a little more. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Basic question: Why did you write this book?
1: <laughs> That's that is the question. I think the answer is you know, in some sense, I'm a legal journalist, and so I had covered most of the lawsuits that I mention in the book, I was really in it. You know, I, I was living it contemporaneously. And so this was the water I was swimming in for many years. And I think that I was really aware as uh, the first sort of lawsuits around Donald Trump's first legal actions, I was very aware of how engaged women lawyers, women judges, women politicians were in fighting. And I noticed, and I mentioned this in the book, that if you take just for example, within days of inauguration, Donald Trump enacted a Muslim ban that limited travel to the United States from a a bunch of majority Muslim countries. And it was not vetted. It wasn't organized. They just simply stopped allowing Muslims in. And one of the things I noticed as I was covering it was that some of the leaders of the legal movement to, to stop that were women. I noticed that women across the country were showing up at airports, all out of proportion. Women lawyers were showing up to simply hold up a sign and say, I will be your lawyer. You know, I just do real estate, but I will be your lawyer. And that four of the five judges who enjoined the Muslim ban within 48 hours were women. So I just was really struck by this is a comment on one of the levers that women have to power, which is not just marching in the streets, not just protest, not just, you know, phone banking and postcarding, but actually being able to walk into a courtroom and stop something. Mm. And I think I would just say maybe in the rearview mirror as we're watching women in Iran who don't have access to the levers of power, right? What they have is their bodies on the street. I wanted it to be a marker of how deeply, deeply successful women have been in the law and how deeply
0: successful they can be. And obviously, a lot of these women must have, as and you say, dropped everything and changed course. I mean, that's always a very interesting test, isn't it? Whether people can say, this is so serious, I have to put my existing plans on hold.
1: Yeah, and I also think if you consider how fundamentally small c conservative the law is as a profession. I mean, these are not mavericks. You know, these are people who went down a very well-trodden path of how you succeed in a law as a, you know, organizer, as a, a law firm attorney. And so the fact that they, of all people, were willing to turn and pivot and change their lives. Some of the women I profile are young mothers. Some of them were engaged in doing something completely different, Uh, It is interesting to me and arresting that they were willing to change everything in a heartbeat because they felt as though they had the power to make change. And maybe the other thing that I noticed that is a through line for so many of the women I interviewed in the book is that even in the face of a legal movement that said— we don't think you should do this. The time isn't right. We haven't workshopped this. You know, we're not all um, in agreement about this as a tactic. It was striking to me that time after time, it was women who said, "Mm, no time, no time to workshop this for two years, just going to file something. And that also was, I think, something that I noticed that felt very new.
0: Yes. You say in your book, Dahlia, there was a sense for you and many other women in the legal profession of how had this happened? Now, have you reflected on that a lot? Just were there warning, warning signs that you all in your busy lives did miss it's
1: such a good question, and I guess I should also note that as this book was going off to the printer, uh, the United States Supreme Court last June, you will recall, um, reversed Roe v. Wade, uh, mm. taking away the right to abortion from women across the country. And so, it's not just a lesson I think we learned in 2016 when somebody who was, you know, a serial philanderer, somebody who'd been accused credibly by multiple women of, you know, assault. That that, that person could get into office as Donald Trump and then immediately make life, I think, immiserated for women and vulnerable people. But as the book was going off to print, I had to actually rewrite chunks of it in light of what you just said, which is millions of American women, I think, never believed that the right to terminate a pregnancy could be vulnerable. And so almost the lesson that I was tracing from 2016 onward really, I think, became very salient in the spring of 2022 when millions of women had that same reckoning of how can this possibly be happening? How can you have a country where 60, 70, 80 percent of the populace wants reproductive freedom and just had it taken away? And I think there were warning signs. I mean, it was clear if you watch the way the courts were changing, if you watched the way, you know, theology was starting to inflect politics in this country. There were lots and lots of signals, I think, along the way that women who had believed that law was an instrument of equality for them could suddenly realize, oh my God, this is going to be weaponized against us. But I do think that kind of sitting in that feeling of shock and really millions of women I think after both the Trump election, after Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, was seated on the court after confirmation hearings when it seemed as though he had also credibly been accused of sexual assault. And then again, as Roe v. Wade was overturned this spring, I think that that sense that this can't possibly happen here, and yet it just happened here, has been a very, very universal American experience.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, there were... There were warnings, of course, um, lots of warnings from people. um, And I suppose it's that sense of recognising that identity shifts had occurred, because obviously there were millions of American women who knew all that about Trump and the allegations, and yet they voted for him. So, in a way, you're reflecting on the law, and I understand that, but did you almost go deeper to see it as a representation of something else, a sen- part of a sensibility of the US that was really in flux?
1: I think that's right. And I think probably I would add one note to what you just said, which is millions of white women uh, not only voted for Donald Trump and voted for him again in 2020, but a lot of those millions of white women are still, you know, voting, I would say in some sense against interest, uh, you know, for candidates like Herschel Walker, who's running for the Senate in a runoff in the U.S., who is accused, in again, in Georgia, um, who is accused by multiple women of having paid for their abortions and and insisted they have abortions and yet is running as an anti-abortion candidate. Uh, So I do think you're quite right. There is clearly a a, a race element to this. There is a gender element. And there is, I think, a religion element, as I've said, where— It seemed to a lot of people that if you looked, you know, at the election of Barack Obama, that there was a sense that sort of that part of history, that revanchist, backward-looking, you know, women belong in the kitchen and, you know, people of color are secondary and we are going to turn on refugees and immigrants, that all seemed like it was over. And I think it's really important, I think you're signaling at this, to realize the degree to which the election of Donald Trump was, in fact, responsive. To that, that a lot of people who felt that they belonged to a culture or a race or a sort of hierarchical worldview of where men and women sort themselves suddenly said, Well, this can't be so. And a lot of the allure of Donald Trump, and still I would say in the years after, the allure of some of the MAGA, the Make America Great Republicans, is the appeal of kind of returning to a simple time of you know race and and gender and LGBTQ um, um, intolerance and and so I think that's quite right that uh, both that it it was coming for a long time and maybe I think I would also say and I just open the book with this and close the book with this. If you were paying attention at Donald Trump rallies early in 2016 when he threw his hat in the ring, one of the things that crowds were chanting, we thought rhetorically, was lock her up, lock her up uh, about Hillary Clinton. Mm. And I think we thought at the time that was not so different from crowds who were chanting, iron my shirt, iron my shirt, right? Because it was just words directed at sort of misogynistic words, throwaway words. And then I think when the book ends, you start to notice that those crowds have been chanting Lock Her Up about women in leadership in the United States for six years. And that, in fact, in the wake of that Roe v. Wade reversal, women are being locked up quite literally in Alabama, in Oklahoma, in Texas for pregnancies and endangering their pregnancies or miscarriages that seem suspicious. And so I think for me, that arc of saying lock her up rhetorically about putting women back in their place and ending with, you know, the opinion in this Dobbs case, reversing row, quite literally citing to witch burners from centuries ago as credible legal sources, I think tells you in some sense that women have come very far and not nearly as far as they thought they had come.
0: Well, it is incredibly thought-provoking. I heard on um, the Ezra Klein podcast, he writes for the New York Times, uh, a very interesting analysis by um, a good pollster, whose name I can't remember, saying that they'd really looked at attitudes. They'd tried to drill down beyond just the figures to attitudes. And there were basically people in the different camps looking out from that camp saying, I don't want to live like them. Both camps doing it to each other, really, absolutely from the gut. I don't want to live like they live. It was very powerful, um, a sense of, of worlds of difference. So to some extent, I suppose I've got to ask people like yourselves, do you not present an inviting vista for women, other women, who you'd think you would, but clearly you don't?
1: I think that you've identified two things that are really singular. One is partisanship in the United States is at a place that is certainly unrecognizable to me as a journalist who's been doing this for 22 years, and I think historically unrecognizable in generations. And there is a deep sense on both the right and the left that, you know, the, the real threat is coming from inside the house. That I would rather, you know, align myself with, you know, Orbach in Hungary or Putin in Russia than with, um, you know, Democrats who I see as, as socialists and, um, godless liberals. And by the same token, you know, I think folks on the American left who are just absolutely, you know, think that that anyone associated with Donald Trump and Trumpism and sort of conservatism is a hater and is sort of an intolerant uh, uh, bigot. And that's the end of the story. And I think you're quite right. You know, one of the things we've seen, not just in the midterm election cycle, but the last few cycles, is that the sense that the threat to, to democracy itself is coming from the other side within the country is really new. I think on your other point, it is certainly, I think, the case, and this is just not just an American problem. I think it goes to media bubbles and it goes to, you know, the ways in which we have created Uh, sort of media and and cultural and social reality in which the other side is so unrecognizable to us as human beings, uh, that we can sort of do this work of never encountering a position or an opinion that's, you know, different from our own. And I think that we're seeing that around the world. And I think it's radicalizing people, this othering of Mm -hmm. uh, anyone whose views you don't share. And I think one of the things, and maybe this is something that I really felt acutely, again, as I I was reporting the book was that that project is a little bit harder for women because they have actually inhabited two realities for much of their lives, because they've both been trying to mash themselves into a cultural moment in which, you know, men are still dominant, in which they still feel as though, you know, they have to behave a certain way at work, they have to control their tempers, they have to dress a certain way, and because they actually move through the world, you know, as women. And so I think there's a way in which, and and, and some of the characters in the book really de- describe the need for empathy and compassion, and that sort of simple skill of walking a few feet in someone else's shoes, as kind of the gateway to getting past what you're describing, mm-hmm. which is a willingness to utterly write off the other side as useless and unteachable. I'm not super super confident Americans are getting there. I have to say, I have found the polarization of the last few years quite chilling. But I will say. I think that I see, and I really see it as a legal reporter, these deep, deep efforts to try, at least institutionally, to say, I actually don't know what I don't know, and that law and politics can
0: get you there. Jay. Um, Let me tell listeners, uh, Dahlia Lithwick is our guest. She's written a very um, acclaimed book called Lady Justice uh, about the behaviour and and motivations of a lot of female lawyers uh, in America in the last few years. Look, we must look at a couple of female luminaries in the legal system uh, that you draw on. Tell us about Paulie Murray, please, because obviously she really does inspire you from what I can read.
1: I'm so glad you asked. She is my favorite character uh, in some sense in this book, which is funny because she long— Uh, you know, died long before um, the advent of the Donald Trump era. I wrote her into the introduction of the book for a couple of reasons. One is, and I don't know how kind of salient this is uh, in Australia, but certainly in the United States, the frenzy over Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a really, I think, landmark important justice on the U.S. Supreme Court to the point where everyone has a tote bag, everybody has the earrings, everybody has the coffee mug and she had died recently and there was a sense of such grievous loss that there would never be a powerful woman in the law again. And so I cast myself back into history to find other characters who I thought of as sort of mini Ruth Baby Ginsburgs. And so Polly Murray really is that Polly Murray actually almost forgotten by American constitutional scholars but Polly Murray was the person who wrote, what became the brief that became Brown versus Board of Education, the case that desegregated Mm -hmm. public schools. She wrote the brief that became the seminal brief that used the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to desegregate by gender uh, in the United States. So she did all this work and got no credit. And throughout history, she wrote a note to Richard Nixon and said, I heard your woman looking for the first woman on the Supreme Court. I think it should be me. And I love her because she sort of pen pals with Eleanor Roosevelt and she's doing all this work and nobody remembers her. And I wanted a little bit to tell Polly Murray's story as emblematic of the ways in which sometimes history forgets women, forgets how they organize, forgets how they work. And yet still they've done the work and that a little bit. My book is a love letter to a whole bunch of women just like Polly Murray.
0: Yeah, I mean, your book also tells your own story with Judge Kozinski, um, who has quite a reputation after two women, Heidi Bond and El- Emily Murphy, and four unnamed former clerks came forward alleging in inappropriate conduct while working for him. Now, this seems to have served as a bit of a catalyst for you to come forward with your own Me Too story.
1: Yeah, I became, I think, after Emily and Heidi, I became uh, the third woman who came forward and and reported what I had known about him, mostly to bolster... What they had reported, but also I think to try to tell a story about how, at least in the United States, um, judges, federal judges who are appointed for life, who can really almost impossible to remove them, can exist in a system when they are sexually harassing clerks, they are showing pornography to clerks, behaving badly for decades, and nobody does anything about it. So it did become, you're quite right, a, a Me Too story, and I should note. He stepped down after a bunch of women came forward. I should also note, by the way, that just last week he started representing Donald Trump filing a— Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, he he filed a a legal pleading comparing Donald Trump to Galileo and other uh, misunderstood (laughs) historical figures. So let it not be said that he has disappeared, but I wanted— to think about Me Too, not just as a story of sort of, you know, one federal judge, but the ways in which we all collude to keep secrets and who that imperils and harms. Mm,
0: very very interesting. I, uh, before I let you go, um, I wonder what you think about the moves this week by the Department of Justice wishing to talk to Mike Pence about January the 6th, the um, the riots on January the 6th, and he had declined to take part in the earlier investigation uh, in in Congress, but he is allegedly weighing up whether this is a different type of approach. Now, again, that sounds to me, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, as if the law is being used in a different way it, a, a, and it, it might well be the way through um, to some form of, um, well, I've been settlement, certainly ventilation, what do you what do you make of all of those moves?
1: It's so interesting. And I think the
0: essential pieces of
1: context are one, Mike Pence, former vice president under Donald Trump, wants to run for president, and we know that he's just launched a huge book and a tour attendant with that in which he's going to explain how it's possible that he was intimately involved with the insurrection of January 6th and also is not responsible for it. And in fact, as you said, was making claims that he would not have to say what he knew and he was alleging sort of immunity from having to testify. So the first thing is this is a, a political, I think, move on his part. And then I think we have the problem, which is that Democrats who've been investigating the events of January 6th through the House committee uh, just lost the House. And so the clock Mm. is ticking down on how long the January 6th investigation can go on. And so that's wrapping up very, very quickly. That will be stymied when Republicans take control Mm. of the House. And so then we have the third piece of it. So, like, welcome to the arcana of American uh, investigations. (laughs) But the third piece of it is, as you say, the Justice Department which has been investigating uh, Donald Trump for a whole bunch of of, uh, other things, Uh, just announced that they were going to seat a special prosecutor who's going to be tasked with finding out what Donald Trump did wrong and what he knew, largely with respect to um, stolen documents. So all of these things are floating around. And I think what you are seeing is Mike Pence trying to pick his way through all of these different sort of some extra constitutional, some through the Justice Department, some through the political branches, through this thicket of how can he preserve his political credibility and still not alienate Trump Republicans who really, really uh, do not support him, who support Donald Trump. And at the same time, how can he finesse this issue of he was literally in the room where it happened and hasn't told us what happened? And I think some of what you're seeing and what we're we're seeing play out is that seam between law and politics in some sense Mm -hmm. that you asked Mm -hmm. me about before. And Mike Pence trying really hard to live on the seam of law and politics politics without implicating himself without damaging himself politically and still somehow not kind of cutting off Donald Trump or the people who support Donald Trump and that's I think what he's trying to pick his way through right now
0: well I hope you continue to try and we'll talk to you again to pick your way through all this Uh, marvelous to talk to you thank you very much indeed Dahlia Leswick
1: thank you for having me I love being with you
0: And so of some of you too, Jason from Geelong, this is the sort of political discourse we need. She can see things from both sides. Yes, look, I agree, Jason. Thank you. Dahlia Lithwick's book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. It's published by Penguin Press. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABCRN.